The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. All right. Welcome, everybody, to How to Make Your Doctors a Positive Experience. And this is March 27th. And I just wanted to welcome everybody. This is going to, we have three panelists to ask. Um, I think we have six questions. We'll ask them six questions. And Larry will introduce what we're doing first. And then we'll ask them the first 40 minutes. We'll be talking to them. And then the last 20 will be time for questions. So, Larry, you can take it away. Thank you, Danette. And uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, what we're going to talk about is how to make physician care a positive experience. You know, despite more than 30 years since the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act and 50 years since the adoption of Section 504 regulations of the Rehabilitation Act, many physicians in the United States are not meeting the basic accommodation need of patients with significant visual limitations. A recent survey of some 1,400 randomly a participant has enabled closed captioning. Close. You can see this transcript. Recording on. Press the empty plus to open pop-up. Representing seven specialties found that less than 10% provide basic accommodations for patients with significant limitations. Now, the definition that was used here was blind or having significant difficulty seeing even with glasses or other corrective lenses. The physician's accommodation performance in this survey measured just two practices. The two that they measured were one, whether the physician always or usually described the clinic space, and two, whether they always or usually provided printed material uh, in large font. Uh, the use of braille material was reported to be so rare that it was not included in the analysis. So of those uh, 1,400 surveys that were sent out, about 32%, 462 of the physicians responded. And of these, 48 physicians, less than 10%, 9.1% said that they provided both of the accommodations always or usually. 267 or about 58% of the physicians said that they provided neither of those accommodations. Ophthalmologists were only marginally better with just 24% providing both accommodations. Now the survey did not address <clears throat> other types of needed accommodations by blind or low vision patients, such as <clears throat> assistance with registration or check-in, 
the filling out of paperwork, verbal or cited guide assistance to examining rooms or testing or therapy areas or doctor's offices, <clears throat> verbal explanation of procedures to be performed or description of equipment to be used. None of those things were surveyed. Similarly, doctors, nurses, medical technicians, and even administrative staff at hospitals, rehabilitation facilities, or emergency care clinics rarely offer these accommodations to patients who are blind or who have low vision. So what we have done is we have asked three uh, individuals to come forward and talk to us about their personal experience interacting with medical personnel. So now I'm going to ask Danette to in, uh, introduce our three panelists and to begin the questioning. Danette? Okay, thank you, Larry. So um, I'm going to say your name and what I would like you to do is tell us wh where you're from and just if you're involved in, in the medical field, what you do and just, just a couple of minutes like that. First, we'll go to Patty Slaby. Hello and welcome to everyone. I am from Arcadia, Wisconsin, a rural community um, in the west central part of Wisconsin. So I deal with a lot of rural clinics, as well as going to Eau Claire, Wisconsin, which has major medical clinics. So I have dealt with both. I also have dealt with um, major hospitals and clinics in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. Awesome. Thank you, Patty. Now we'll go to Vivian Younger. Yes, um, I have um, done rehabilitation work for the blind, and I presently am an independence guidance instructor with the Vista Center for the Blind. Where do you live? And I'm in California. Thank you. And um, what I do, uh, I do empowerment classes. Um, our agency is considered um, medical because we do the low vision evaluations on site. And um, so I try to help empower uh, newly blind clients um, how to navigate the uh, medical system and how to feel empowered when they go in that doctor's office and need certain things. And I also facilitate um, uh, adjustment to vision loss um, classes and support groups and also provide um, support and classes for family members. All right, perfect, thank you. And Jane Perry, go ahead. Can you hear me? Yes, uh-huh. Okay, thank you. This is Jane Perry and I live in Falmouth, Massachusetts on Cape Cod. You often hear me say, this is your Cape Cod connection. <laughs> and I have a vision problem just like all of you, but I have been in the healthcare profession all of my life. And I have been retired from Falmouth Hospital in 2004, where I worked for 28 years in different um, departments as a health unit coordinator, which is a glorified term for the secretary on the floor and in <coughs> patient accounts. And now I am been a patient and I've been on both sides of the fence. So I awesome. hope can be some 
guidance to some of the people today. Thank you for allowing me. I'm sure you will. Thank you, Jane. Okay, Larry, you want to take the first one or do you want me to? First question. All right, well, what we would like to do is to ask each of you three to tell us of a personal experience that you had uh, with your doctor or in a rehab facility or in a hospital And whether it was a positive or a negative, or if it started out one way and you were able to change it. So would you share with us in just a couple of minutes a personal experience that you had with a a, a health provider? Uh, Vivian, would you begin? Okay. I apologize for the background because um, they're doing gardening here in where I live. Um, Of course they are. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> so um, I uh, approached my doctor about um, wanting to have cataract surgery. Um, at that time, I could see large objects. I could see a tree, but no details. And sometimes people look like silhouettes. And that's the vision status that I was experiencing at the time. And the doctor said, you have such little vision. Why should we do that? Well, that made me very, very angry. Um, He went on to say it really wouldn't make that much of a difference. So I got very angry um, and uh, everybody heard what I had to say in the halls and everywhere because I felt that the doctor was taking in his own hands, uh, playing God in air quotes. And um, I wanted to be able to see about other options. So I left out of the office. I felt the sun shine. I started to pray for some answers. And I says, okay, I'm going to do a second opinion. And then um, I'm going to worry about maybe getting a personal loan to pay for my surgery. So what happened was um, the retina specialist that I saw for second opinion said, well, you know, Vivian, there's a 50% chance that you could lose the rest of your vision. But the most important thing I want you to know is that you want to have peace about your decision. I was really, I couldn't believe the doctor was um, speaking to me that way. It really helped in that moment. Well, needless to say, I had the surgery and I went back to seeing traffic signals and able to read print. Um, and as far as that loan that I was praying for, I got the loan, but individuals on my job went out and fundraised, made garage sales, and was able to pay that $7,000 um, uh, surgery. So that was wonderful. I, I just, I'm so glad that I, you know, I took some steps. I thought about what I might do in order to, you know, advocate. And I learned a lot from that experience. We're curious to know, Vivian, if you have an awareness of other patients that that doctor had who also were visually impaired and if they had similar experience with him or or different ones. Do you have an awareness of that? I have an awareness of that through my job. Um, uh, clients would report the, that um, that's what happened in that particular um, 
doctor and HMO for that matter. And um, so, of course, I did, I, you know, I, I just kept the um, personal separate from the professional. And uh, that's why I now teach um, diagnosis specific uh, empowerment classes. Uh-huh. Let's now ask uh, Patty, would you share an experience, please? Okay. I'll, I'll do my most recent one. There's one of those Medicare wellness um, visits that everyone has to go through once you get to that ripe old age of being on Medicare. Well, I knew there was going to be paperwork to fill up because been there, done that before. So I, when setting up the appointment, I asked if there was anyone I could talk to about getting those forms ahead of time, either via email or in a printed format, because I, I knew that I could find someone to help me. I'm very fortunate that way. Well, I was connected with a PR person from the um, the clinic where I go and was sent the forms and I had them completed um, and am now working with that same individual to next time we're going to try to get those excess in an, in, in an accessible format by email so that I can totally do it independently and submit it back to the clinic before I get there. Once I walk in, I usually go in by myself because it is a small clinic and my driver doesn't need to go in. And if the driver does go in, I always ask that person to please stay back and do not make any eye contact. Uh, this is my appointment and I need to be in control. And I do travel with a guide dog. So usually when we come in, it's always, well, how are you doing your dog today? Which to me is okay because I was first in the question. Then I begin the process of um, working with the nurse. And as soon as I meet her, I politely say, please do not give the dog directions. Give them to me and I will give them to the dog. And please, whatever you do, whenever you take anything down or you're going to write anything, you need to verbalize it. But do not verbalize it in the hallway. That's nobody else's business. But I, I found that you have to be very positive. You have to be very frank with them and really make them understand how important it is to you that this is valuable. Then I have a, a, an ex- extraordinary nurse practitioner. I, I wouldn't trade her for the world. She is very thorough. She is very verbal. I always know what's going to happen. I always can anticipate you know, her thinking. And we always talk about decisions that are going to be made before we make them. And I've had some you know pretty hard decisions to have to make due to some of my other um, um, ailment, other disabilities that I have other than total blindness. And at the end, because I'm still not able to use the portal on this particular um, healthcare system yet, um, she prints out all the information that she has typed into the computer and hands it to me so that I can take it home and scan it. I wish it could come out in an email format, but thus far as it's printed. And usually we can exit ourselves out of the clinic by ourselves. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Were you able to affect the uh, behavior of other staff members in her office? Yes, I have been there. They, they are very open to what I suggest. And, you know, sometimes they will try something that may not work and they may have an idea, you know, such as signing that uh, privacy issue thing. Um, you, you know, they're very good about telling you where the machine is and, and handing you the pen if you can't find it because it's laying on the counter. They're, they're very accommodating. And I don't know, because maybe it's because it is so small, 
that I am very fortunate to, to have this particular experience. Now, it's not true everywhere I go. Mm -hmm. And we'll get back to you with more questions, but let's yeah. now hear from Jane, shall we? Thank you. I started out in 19, I just want to tell you a little bit about myself if I could. I have retinitis pigmentosa, and I also have a syndrome of my ID disease called Bardet Beetle system syndrome, which affects every system of my body. Mm. And I was diagnosed in 1987. And then the year after that, my primary care doctor retired. And she suggested me to go to somebody. I go, oh, my goodness. So went to her. We filled out all the paperwork in the waiting room. And after several visits, she said to me, I suggested to have some, some tests done. And she said, Jane, did you go to medical school? I said, well, I live with this every day. This is what my eye doctor said. So I went home, and after several years, I spoke to my aunt, and she said, I know somebody that's really great, that's very patient, that will listen to you, will explain things to you. And actually, she just called me to get give me some test results. And um, my who was now my primary care physician, I have had her for probably about the last seven years. Her staff is excellent, but what she does when she first comes in the room, she always has a bubbly, upbeat personality. She greets me either by coming over and not only announcing, hi, Jane, it's Dr. Megan, but she gives me and her shakes my hand or she gives me a hug and it's so nice to see you. So what's going on? And we have a chat and then we talk about things. but. Before going into her office, her staff is great. They always ask, I say to them, can I take your elbow? And they lead me down the hall and they tell me which way to turn. And I have to use the restroom to give a urine sample. They tell me where the sink is and to wash my hands and where the paper towels are. and You know, how to leave the specimen. And when I get into the exam room after the med medical assistant takes my vitals, Everything is done in the examination room. Nothing is done in the waiting room, whether it's filling out additional paperwork, updating paperwork, having a shot or a vaccine. And she always goes through everything, whether it's my medications. Have I seen such and such doctor? When are you going to see the doctor? Oh, we bypassed the scale. <laughs> because I've lost a lot of weight and she knows that I have a balance issue. So that's a good thing. But when I end the visit, she always prints out everything so that when I take it home, I can read it. But it also has my appointment, which is made in the exam room for my next visit. Any lab tests I have to have, if I can't have them done there. And if I do, then the lab technician comes over in the room, draws the lab work. If I have to sign anything, sometimes Medicare says they won't pay for specific tests, which in fact they will. So what I have told her is, or the lab technician, can I either use my signature guide or can I have you fold it on the line so that I can write on the line? And the other thing is that because I'm not computer savvy, I'm trying, or Zoom savvy, savvy, is the portal. So when we had the COVID issue, 
Of course, she's in a group practice. So every time you call, you get a different receptionist. Went round and round and round about making an appointment using virtual. And I said, I'm older. What do you do for people who don't you have a computer? Like people who live on the Cape. One third of every town is older population. And they said, oh, well. I said, okay. So we had, I said, can I speak to the, the, the nurse? So I hung up and they called back. I said, when you, she has a moment, whether it's a medical technician, um, medical assistant, Fatima, or one of the nurses, Barbara or Colleen, can they call me back? Within a few minutes, they call me back and I would get a virtual telephone visit. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, when she calls, she'll also call me and go over the test results on the phone. And then she'll also send me the test results. So I just really, truly am so lucky to have someone like her who yeah. helps understands my complicated syndrome of my vision loss. All right. All right. Thank you, Jane. And thank you, everybody. Here's your next question. And this is just if it like applies to you, you can answer it. If it doesn't, then we'll move forward. So the next question would be, do you know if there was any other blind or visually impaired patients who have encountered this same issue? And, this is okay. Go ahead. Yep. I'm sorry to know you're going to be calling on you're us. Okay. You're this okay. is Jane, and I'm going to say probably not. But as okay. I said, I live in an older population, right? But I think that she, because we have such a good report, and I brought mm-hmm. in different devices like my script talk. Yep. Because she's asking how I've managed my prescriptions and my meds yep. at home. So I think that over time, yep, that they yep. have learned from from me yep thank you for for saying your name first vivian or patty do you have any um comments this about is, this is patty i have yep. no awareness of anything else okay and uh, this is vivian i had mentioned uh, a little bit earlier that um um i ended up seeing patients um where I work and um, was, and then we complain about the same doctor and sometimes that particular facility. And, and that's where I got the idea, you know what? There is a huge need uh, for people to learn how to advocate for themselves in the medical setting in particular. Mm-hmm. 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 I'd like um, the three of you to address um, the issue of consequences. Uh, what would you say are the consequences or have been the consequences for yourself or might be the consequences for other patients with uh, vision uh, problems um, where medical personnel fail to provide the needed accommodations? What what consequences might there be if you had not gotten the cooperation, shall we say, uh, and the willingness on the part of the staff that you talk to, what would have been the consequences or the outcome for you as an individual if you had not been successful? Um, Vivian, you want to begin? Uh, sure. Um, doctors 
often make um, decisions for us when we have um, multiple disabilities. At the time, I was having a hard time with my knees. Uh, and I knew that a knee replacement was uh, uh, in order. And I had to work for months with my doctor as to why he didn't think I should have one. Well, my doctor went all over the place and back. And, and as, as it turns out, um, he couldn't imagine a blind person having to use crutches. And that's why he held off my surgery for two years. Well, the consequence, two of them, one, um, I was always falling, especially when I would encounter an uneven surface, especially when getting on planes, I traveled a lot with my work. Uh, and then the second consequence is I actually taught my doctor the importance of full disclosure and that he, if he could be open and um, transparent uh, with the decision-making process. So, because I, here's what I believe. We as patients are equal partners with our doctors. We know what's wrong with our eyes. We know what's wrong with our bodies. And we're looking to them to give us some solutions that we can consider. And starting on that, because a lot of people, they may see uh, your doctor as, um, as, as godlike, the, the final one that gives the information and a decision. Um, and that piece that I mentioned earlier, the more that we can um, research, ask questions, get second opinions, uh, that's what's going to move us along so that we don't feel that we only have one choice and that's whatever that one doctor says. Very good. Jane, what about in your case? What if you had been not successful in getting the willingness and cooperation okay. of your uh, healthcare professional to, to treat you the way that you want to be treated? What would have been the impact on you? That's kind of a very difficult question because I now have a great team of doctors. And, but in the beginning, it was very difficult because people don't know or physicians don't know much about Bardet-Beetle syndrome, which is one of many syndromes from retinitis pigmentosa. And it affects every system of your body. And there are many doctors I have to see. There's many times I have to update things and get results. And the frustration of making sure that they understand that I don't see it all anymore. And it's very difficult to make them understand, some of the specialists understand the things that I need, the tests that I need, because I know about my syndrome more than the doctors do, because again, I live with this. But the one thing that I find very difficult is ac accessing the portal, because it's not accessible. And the other thing is, my primary care doctor is in one healthcare system. And all of the other health doctors I see are in a different healthcare system. So it's difficult sometimes to make sure that everybody is on the same page, like all of the tests. So I would say 
the positive outcome is the teaching tool. Because I'm a teacher, I think. We're all teachers. Every day that we yeah. leave our house, then we and live with a vision impairment. Mm -hmm. And we have to be an advocate. And sometimes you, have, you learn patience along the way. Because in the beginning, I was very an adamant person, sometimes very angry and very frustrated. But now I learn about kindness. Yeah. And I've learned to be patient. And that when they don't tell me the answer that I'm looking for, and I go home and I think about it, yeah. and either I will fire that doctor and find <laughs> a new doctor, or I will call back again and I will ask the question in a different way. So, Jane, how do you get everybody on the same page? It's very difficult. But I think that just knowing that I know so much about this syndrome and I try to bring information, let them know that there's information on the website, I mean, on the internet. I have an old pamphlet that needs to be updated. And there is an organization, Vardy Beetle Syndrome Family Association, that we have seminars. Matter of fact, we might be planning an upcoming one in Boston. Mm -hmm. And that I can live with this syndrome and still mm -hmm. function, even though I'm not working, and living with stage four renal failure, living with diabetes, living with thyroidism, hyperthyroidism, and I take many medications, and I can I can manage my own medicines, and live in my own house, yeah. and live my way of life that I have for the rest of I have in my past years. But, but, but what if not, they were what if they were unwilling to make the changes, the accommodations that you requested? What would have been well, then your I, next step? Would, my next step would probably be to look for somebody else. Hopefully, mm -hmm. there would be somebody that would understand. That would listen. I would call the um, some of my family um, members to see if they could help me. Mm -hmm. But everybody knows that I'm a very good advocate, and I can speak up for myself. I've learned that along the way. Maybe that's because I have been a chairperson of the Commission on Disabilities, and I had a good mentor who taught me how to advocate for myself, along with the Commission on I mean, the Cape Organization for the Rights of Disabled. But it's hard to advocate. It's hard to make your feelings known in a very respectful, advantageous way. And if you can learn that, which takes time, that word that people don't want it, doesn't like to hear. But if you can, um, one thing is, you know, the next time I would go to the, another specialty doctor, instead of filling out the forms in the waiting room, I would bring the paperwork already done. And I'd say, oh, you have to fill out this paperwork. I said, no. I said, this is already, this is what I have right here. But I think we have to learn how to be an advocate. And I hope that maybe sometime one of these calls or this, this organization might tell people how to advocate, but do it in a very tactful, professional, kind way. Mm -hmm. Thank you. All right, Patty. Um, Answer the same question, yes. Yes, okay. 
What if I'm, what I'm, if, I'm fairly lucky because I'm in a rural area because I do end up at different clinics for, for different reasons, partly because some of the testing can't be done unless you can get a ride, you know, 15 to 25 miles away. And there's something closer that you take advantage of that. But then I'm very, um, advocate a lot, say, please send it to, you know, my primary care provider. And I make sure that it gets there when I go for my next visit, or I want to hear the results because my physician is very open about calling me with all results. Um, more of my, my trouble is in actually just getting in to some of these places. Um, there's one where there's a, a kiosk and yes, yes, you can maybe use your phone. I have tried using my phone and I just I can't always figure out where to go on the screen. And plus it takes you longer and you've got people standing behind you. So I was very frustrated one day and I finally just went up to the desk and I said, I'm sorry, I just can't do this. And so the lady helped me at the front desk. And then when I got home, I called the uh, resource uh, center of this particular clinic. And it's a major uh, hospital clinic and started to talk to somebody. And they are now working on that to see how much accessibility and if this big um, major hospital can can do something. I think a, it'll be a lot of advocacy for a lot of us. But I had to start quietly, and um, I, I think one of my issues that really drives me crazy is they yell at you like, "Okay, <laughs> I can't see," and so you have to. And I, what, what I do in that case is I start to talk real quietly so that <laughs> so do I. I don't know how else to teach them, but please don't yell. <laughs> yep, it's so, good. so living in a rural community, you have fewer choices than those of us who live in metropolitan areas to, you know, make changes to go to a, find a different doctor. So if they had not been willing to uh, accommodate your requests, what would have been the impact on you and what would you have done about it? I would have gone to either Eau Claire or Minneapolis-St. Paul to uh, a much larger uh, facility. Right. So at the very least, the consequences of physicians or other medical staff not uh, understanding our request for reasonable accommodation and not meeting those needs. At the very least, it causes anxiety and, mm -hmm. and confusion, but also it could lead to misunderstanding of uh, maybe the diagnosis or the treatment plan. It, sometimes doctors and medical technicians will talk in medical ease. And mm -hmm. so it's not always easy to understand what they are saying. And if we're a little bit hesitant about saying, would you put that in plain English? If, we, if we're intimidated by the doctor, then sometimes we may miss out on understanding important mm -hmm. information. Okay, that Larry, was something. Larry, I had that experience when I was diagnosed with a rare condition. It took them um, five days and still went home without a diagnosis. And hey, is that there was, Oh, I'm sorry. No, and that's not Vivian. That's that's Patty. This is Patty. Okay, yeah. go ahead. Um, and um, th there came a lot of medic medical ease, as Larry called it. And um, finally, I I was so confused, and I um ended up crying because I was so scared. I didn't know what was going on. I was getting sicker, and finally, I just asked the nurse. I said, "Please, can you just explain all this?" And she goes, "I'll be right back." 
And she went and got one of the neurologists and that person came in. Otherwise, I was ready to leave that hospital and, and go to somewhere else via ambulance because it was to the point of being really, really scared. Lynette, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. do you have another question? I do. Okay. So in all that we do as blind or visually impaired individuals, we are always educating the public. What kind of success have you had with this? And talk about that. Educating your medical team. This is Jane. Could I answer that question? Uh, yes. Okay. okay. I think a couple of things. And I think I've talked about them, but I'd like to reiterate them. One is my script talk machine. People say, what are you talking about? I said, oh, it's a great little machine that the pharmacy has a computer they put input all my information in it that's on the bottle so when i get home there's a little little thing on the bottom roll around looks like a paper button and i put it on this machine and it reads everything on the bottle and i've shown it to a lot of people and they go oh my god that's wonderful or the thing about finding something um you know putting the signature guide or putting the pen on the line and using my finger to guide. The other thing is the white cane. I can't believe, can't explain to you how many times being a healthcare professional, they don't understand what the white cane is all about. You know, I don't use it for the good of my health, but once I can show them that I can get to a specific place, they understand that. So I think we're always educating and those are some of the things that I've educated my healthcare professional team about sighted guide. Right. And about, you know, the importance of explaining things. And I bring my Victor stream with me all the time with me. So if I have questions, I can record what the, what the answers are. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, unfortunately I've been a healthcare professional all my life. So I understand the verbiage, but there are sometimes when there's things that they don't talk, they talk about, or I'll say to them, Oh, is this what you mean? And they are amazed that I have the knowledge, you know, I'm not stupid. I'm just don't see very well. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I've learned to laugh at myself a lot. Very good. Very good. And it's great that you um, do the recording because sometimes when you're actually in, in the appointment, you're overwhelmed with all the information that they're giving you that, then you can record all what th- th- they're saying to you that you can review it when you go home. So, yeah, that's great. It, exactly. And sometimes you even forget what you want to ask them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're so overwhelmed it's, about being there and what they're going to tell you. Yeah, that's great. It is nearly 40 minutes I, past. Okay. Th- this will be our last. Thanks. I want, yeah, okay. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, this is Vivian. Hi, Vivian. Um, I was thinking about talking about um, how to make a doctor's visit successful, a quality doctor visit. Um, Mm -hmm. And and so what I wanna say is that um, you wanna become familiar with your diagnosis and learn about it, whether that's using a smart speaker or even asking um, your, your, uh, like a Siri, 
uh, mm -hmm. questions, uh, people questions. Um, also, um, you will want to come prepared with a written list of questions that you want to ask your doctor. Doctors really like receiving written questions. They can become a part of your medical records. And in that list of questions, you also want to include your functional limitations. Doctor, I am no longer able to see large print. You want to include a complaint. Doctor, my eyes tire easily after reading for five minutes. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about a symptom that you might be having. Doctor, my vision is becoming blurry. When you use those words, that is like a post-it note to the doctor so that they can, they're, they're going to be more zeroed in on that. Yeah. And the most important part about the visit is that you want to prepare a 30-second elevator pitch about the summary of the uh, visit. And also, if the doctor is going to have a written certification that you're legally blind or, you know, whatever. But that approach and being prepared and calling ahead of time about your tests makes you a wonderful advocate for yourself. And then if you need other people to advocate for you, like the um, American Council of the Blind, uh, for me, California Council of the Blind, get involved. That's how you also can learn to advocate right within the organizations that you live near. So that's what I wanted to add to the conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in, in closing, this is Patty. I, I pretty much yeah. do what they do. I, I pretty much advocate and try to teach them all about how I do things. I always go in with a list of questions. I always have my Victor reader with me Good. and uh, it, it really helps a lot. So I, I can't add much more than what they do. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. And, Annette and, and Larry, can, can I just, can I jump in and, and talk yeah. about what you've been yeah. talking about sort of from a different standpoint? Um, <coughs> excuse me. I've been members of Kaiser Permanente for uh, decades, and I've seen a lot of change in the way they do things over time. And it used to be a real pain in the butt um, to try to get them to understand what, you know, how to deal with someone who has, you know, vision problems and, and that kind of thing. And I, I'll tell you the, the website and, and uh, the, a lot of the things you can access now are uh, really helpful in, in terms of being able to deal with the, the system. Uh, part of the education actually is reminding doctors, if you go to a new doctor, reminding them of how they can help you because the system is already there and they may not know about that particular aspect of the system because they haven't uh, dealt with a visually impaired person before. Right. But uh, the, our advocacy and, and complaining and, and, and lawsuits and whatever we've had to do in the past have really helped um, make, you know, make some of the, the healthcare systems a lot more um, cognizant of the things that they need to supply for us. For example, I don't need to bring a Victor Reader stream with me when I go to an appointment because they put their after, uh, after appointment uh, notes uh, in my medical record that I can access over the internet. So, uh, you know, if they've got, if they've got a care plan, I can access it on the internet, you know, through my computer at any time. So whenever I have a question about the care plan, uh, I can just go to that. And, and I do, I have a script talk too. They do the prescriptions, you know, the, the mail 
delivery prescriptions. They, they do script talk. So uh, a lot of that stuff has been, I've done, uh, I've done um, video uh, appointments, you know, and I can't see, but you know, I, I, I know how to use, uh, you know, I, I know how to use my phone or my, or my computer so that they can, uh, you know, we can hook them up and, and, and they can see me if I, even if I can't see them. So there are, yeah, there's, there's lots of stuff that's going on that's in a positive direction, mm -hmm. but you got to find out what that is. And you got to also, as you said, uh, educate uh, some of your healthcare teams on what's available to them in order to help serve you. Very good. Okay. Now it's time for questions. So if you have a question for our panelists, feel free to raise your hand. And Travis, do we have any hands raised? We have one hand right now, and it is a phone number, 603 ending. I think I said that. Yeah, 603 ending in 933. Yes, hello. Uh, my name is Jody. I live in New Hampshire. And one concern that I have uh, is that the last time I went to the doctor, I, I was actually very furious because he made the assumption that because he said, you know, in a very patronizing way, well, you know, I'm concerned because of your visual impairment that, you, that you're a fall risk. And I, I kind of blew up. I said, you know, I've been blind <laughs> for 70 years. I don't have any more likely chance of falling than you do. I've also had martial arts training, so I know how to fall. I could teach you how. And I just, I, I was very upset that there's this generalist, in other words, it adds to the stereotype that they assume you're a fall risk. and I, I stewed about it for a couple of weeks and then I called the ADA coordinator at my medical center and I, I told her how I felt about it. And sh her husband is deaf and she said, oh, I understand the assumptions that are always made about people with disabilities. And then she said that they're planning to put together a panel at the medical center of people with disabilities mm -hmm. to address all the issues and concerns and would I be interested in joining? And I said, absolutely. But I think, you know, that's part of the advocacy. But there seems to be this new assumption that we all are a fail, fall risk because we can't see. And I, mm -hmm. I know a gentleman that's in his 50s that was uh, admitted to the hospital and they told him he wasn't allowed to get out of bed because he was a fall risk. And he had the same reaction of, you know, I'm no likely to more likely to fall than, than you are. So, you know, yeah. I, and I, like I said, if I had just lost my sight, then maybe that would be a concern until I learned how to navigate, you know, with vision loss. But I said, I, I've been blind for 70 years. Give me a break. I think that's the problem is that they're looking at statistics and the statistics do show that people who have visual, uh, uh, limitations uh, are twice as likely to have a fall as somebody who is sighted. But they're primarily, those uh, statistics are skewed by the fact that they're looking at older persons who are recently becoming visually impaired. And because of that, if they don't have the good uh, balance or good orientation or et cetera, they may be trying to rely on their reduced vision which could in fact cause them, you know, to not see objects and so forth. So I think they're basing their concerns or their fears on general statistics, which are really weighted by the uh, statistics on older persons who are recently visually impaired. 
but you're right to explain to the doctors that, you know, look at each patient individually. Don't look at me as part of a group. Right. Look at my abilities, <laughs> yeah. my limitations. Right. And that's what's really important in the education process that's is okay. for the doctor to see you as an individual and not as part of a, a group. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So even in Clubhouse, if you want to raise your hand you can or request to speak, you can d- do that. Excuse me. Sorry. All right, our next hand here is Anne. Hey, Anne. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm not good at this webinar thing. Oh, okay. I could talk for hours and hours and hours and hours and write 10, 12, 15, 20 books about this one subject, but I won't. Um, a lot of the problems that I have is when I go to the doctor, they want to talk to the person who is with me about mm-hmm. whatever the issue is. Yeah. It's not about me. It's about the it's about the fact that they want to talk to the person. And if they don't at the beginning, usually I like for them to walk back out with me. You may have to walk through several halls or whatever, you know. Or they'll open the door and tell my driver whatever went on in the examining room, not only did she hear it, but everybody in the waiting room heard it. And it's none of anybody's business because I just met her 30 minutes before she brought me. Mm -hmm. Amen. Right. Go ahead. Was that um, Jane? This is is Vivian. Go ahead, ahead, Vivian. Um, Yes. So it's really important to talk to who's ever with you and let them know if you if they do go in with you to several things. One, not give the doctor direct eye contact. Two, look away and point to you. Um, and, and number three, for, for those of you who are visually impaired, at the very first thing you say, I'm such and such, uh, this is such and such over here. I'm going to take notes. Um, please direct all questions to me. And that way it's cleared up right away and the doctor knows what to expect. And right. what, what this is about, everybody, is that you go to who's familiar to you. So because mm-hmm. the doctor recited, he feels more comfortable communicating with the sighted person, assuming that's who's with you. And so as long, if we can understand that, um, I think that would really help and de-stress quite a bit before we actually start the doctor's visit. That's Very good. Very good. Mm-hmm. You know, we've Let- heard a lot of good stories of very, very powerful advocacy efforts. And that's the message that we are hopeful that we're sending out to the audience, mm-hmm. that there are ways to change the behavior of people but as uh, as Jane and Vivian and Patty have said, you've got to take step forward, but you've got to do it in a diplomatic and uh, and a mm-hmm. in a clear manner. But failing that, uh, I want to make sure that you all understand that it is a violation, not just a, uh, not just a discourtesy, but it actually is a violation of federal law. For mm-hmm. entities who yep. receive federal funding, which means 
payments through Medicare or Medicaid to uh, hospitals or doctor's offices and so forth. It's a violation to fail to provide reasonable accommodations to persons with disabilities under 504, not ADA, but under right. 504 right. yeah. of the Rehabilitation Okay, excuse me, Act. I do need to interrupt because well, we have just, about 10 minutes. Wanna, let me just add this little quick note that if you're interested in knowing about that, the American Council of the Blind has a Dear Provider letter that you might want to check out. And if you need to, you can use it. And, and it's available on ACB's website. And you would go to the ACB website and you would search for Dear-Provider-Resource. Yes. I do want to try to get to everybody because we do have a hand in Clubhouse. All right, let's take that hand. Kirby, who we got? I don't see Herbie's hand I'm up. I'm not seeing any hands in Clubhouse. There is one hand raised on the panelist it's, side. It's Vivian. Oh, no. Okay. I don't, I don't have a question. I okay. Okay. Take the, take the two uh, in attendee side, please. You got it. That's what okay. I was going to do. Joe Sorry, is, Travis. <laughs> yep. No, I was looking for Herbie's hand, and it wasn't up. So It's I'm the hosting that's coming out of me. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on it. I'm on it, Danette. <laughs> Joe, good, uh, it's your turn. Good, good afternoon, everybody. Um, this Hi, is a great. Joe. Hey, this is a great conversation, um, and it's interesting because I just went to uh, the Eye Institute here in Philadelphia to yeah. get a, get evaluated for low vision equipment and whatnot. And I spoke with the person who is the doctor. It came in and she showed me a piece of equipment, and we were talking. And I'm there for. Uh, information and I'm there for to, to be enlightened. And it felt like, because I've kind of done my own research in advance, I was enlightening her. So that can be very frustrating. And I know one of the ladies here talked about having a rare disease and I have a rare eye disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have a rare eye disease in, uh, in Aridia. I'm a third generation aneritic and I can imagine, I can remember when I was a child and being with my pediatric ophthalmologist who basically at like four or five tried to explain the medical uh, situation to me in such a way that I could really kind of grasp the severity because my eye disease basically took hold of me since birth, but really gripped onto me in my early teens um, and trying to be an advocate, even at 11 or 10 or, or 12, it, it's such a difficult thing because you're talking to an adult who in their perspective, you're just a kid. And, and, and that is such a difficult and challenging thing to do. Now me as an adult, even as a young adult, like I, I look and I've done because I've had to done so much research. But even when I go to my regular eye doctors, they they have like uh, the technicians that come in and they do the little workup before the doctor comes in and they'll they'll say, OK, we're going to numb your, your eyes. I'm like, well, hold on. I'm like, why are you going to numb my eyes? 
Well, we got to dilate your eyes. I'm like, I have prosthetic corneas. You're dilating nothing. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, well, I, I, I was born with no iris and no pupil due to my aniridia. That's in the file. I'm like, I have a prosthetic cornea, so I don't know what you're dilating exactly, but yeah. you're going to put a drop in my eye, numb the the surrounding eyeball, but nothing is. You're going to get nothing out of it. And, it's not going to dilate. Yeah, <laughs> right. And 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 I'm like astounded. Yeah. By mm -hmm. both the Eye Institute example and sometimes occasionally from the medical professionals, like the technicians and whatnot, like my doctors know, but the technicians, you yeah. get a different one sometimes. And, yeah. and so, like they don't always just read what's in the file. And I go, That's I'm right. the one with the visual impairment. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> um, All right. Thank you, Joe. This yeah. is Jane. Can I just um, tell Joe something? Yeah. I, I know Quickly. Joe. Joe. This is Jane. <laughs> And we, we met. I have the vision, the Zaria syndrome. And you're right. I go to the retinal specialist up in Boston. And every year, the technician makes me read the eye chart. And I go, oh, I can't see a blessed thing down there. Then they put yeah. the fingers in front of me. I said, you know, I can't see. So why are you doing this? It's a waste of time. And it's a waste of my time. So please not do this again. Thank you. That's what I tell them. Yeah. So. You have to be adamant, but do it in a very positive, respectful way. Yes. You, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay, let's take our last hand and then we'll have our closing remarks. All right. Quickly. Only got about two minutes left. It's Beth. Hey, Beth. Quickly, please. Um, yes. Sometimes things go state by state. Like on the East Coast, I notice you're more progressive than... Um, then a lot of rural America, you know, especially like in the South and Southwest, and you, you cannot make these doctors understand for anything like, uh, like you were yeah. saying about the reading of the eye chart and, and different things. Yeah. And so like, what do you do when there's only like one little hospital in your, in your town? And sometimes you have to go further away to, yeah. uh, to receive any uh, medical services. Just keep yeah. trying to educate and advocate for what you know. Yeah. That, right. That's what educate, educate, educate. Yes. And this is Doug. I'm, I'm uh, Doug. Go Powell. ahead, Doug. I'm, I'm, I'm the president of the Alliance on Aging and Vision Loss, and we're the ones who host these monthly calls. So we thank you all for joining us. And we thank very, very much uh, Danette and Larry for uh, facilitating and uh, Vivian and uh, Jane and uh, Patty for uh, being on our panel this month. And we invite you all to obviously to join the AAVL and uh, go to our website if you want more information or to, you know, or to register as a new member. That's AAVL-blind-blind-blind-blind-blind-blind-blind-blind-blind-blind-blind-blind-blind-blind-blind-blind-blind-blind-blind-blind-blind-blind-blind-blind-blind-blind-blind-blind-blind-blind-blind-blind
Thanks, Herbie and Travis and all the panelists and Larry. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Closing the room. Yes. Thank you.